This is Family Office Intel at Denton's, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the modern family office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Dr. Chris Sidford and Dr. Jordan Schlein. Jordan is the founder and chairman of Private Medical, a full-service family office for healthcare and medicine, serving members in New York, LA, San Francisco, and Silicon Valley uh, for nearly 20 years. In addition to Private Medical, Jordan founded one of the first AI digital health companies, Health Loop, and is a co-founder of Eat Real, a nonprofit working to end childhood diabetes. Jordan is also an internationally trusted thought leader, advises public and private companies on the future of healthcare, and continues to be a practicing physician active even during the COVID-19 crisis and as a volunteer and authority on the state of the pandemic. Chris is a board-certified physician in emergency medicine with over 20 years of experience. He started his career at Boston City Hospital, where he graduated from the hospital's Knife and Gun Club, uh, the residency program for emergency physicians there. As a U.S. Navy officer, Chris helped open an underground nuclear chemical and biological proof hospital on the island of Sicily. Chris also provided support for NATO troops during an amphibious operations at the Arctic Circle. Today, we'll be discussing several interesting areas, including what to expect on the healthcare front in a post-pandemic world, the positive scientific outcomes stemming from the pandemic, potential revolutions in how we practice medicine, emergency medicine lessons learned uh, from around the world, and how adjacent breakthrough technologies are changing the healthcare space. So let's get started. Uh, Jordan, how did you get your start working with family offices? It's a, it's a funny story. It's an accidental story. Um, my father uh, was the chief of surgery here in San Francisco uh, back in the 90s, and I uh, became an internist, uh, just a regular GP sitting in an office like everybody else, uh, until one day the doctor I was working for um, reneged on our deal um, for me to take over his practice. So I quit, uh, walked out the door, didn't know what I was going to do with my life, um, and was walking down the street in downtown San Francisco in 1998. And for those of you who remember that time, the internet had turned on. There was a, cell phones were small enough to fit in your pocket and the email address had come out. Um, and I was walking down the street and walked into a little cafe to have a cup of tea and contemplate what I was going to do with my life and realized I was sitting in the lobby of the Mandarin Oriental Hotel and was like, wow, this looks like a pretty fancy place. So I walked up to the head concierge and and I said, hey, who's the doctor that takes care of your guests here when they get sick? She looked at me and said, who are you? I said, well, I could be the doctor who takes care of your guests here. And she said, you're a doctor? And I said, I am. And she said, doctor, with all due respect, this is a five-star hotel. And I take great pride in providing five-star service to my guests. She said, I'm only a concierge, which means I'm probably two-star smart, but I'm five-star service from linens to lunches to limos to everything. She said, if you're a doctor, you're five-star smart. You must be. She said, but your industry is one-star service. If you want to be the doctor to my hotel and my guests, you need to learn five-star service. She didn't know that I had just quit my job about 20 minutes earlier. And so I asked her, I said, you know, teach me, 
T tell me what that means. Um, she credentialed me, made sure I was who I said I was, and she took me under her wing. And over the next few months, I um, became, uh, you know, kind of quasi-certified, not for, through the real five-star program, but through a five-star chef concierge at the Mandarin, and wound up taking care of presidents of nations, Fortune 50 CEOs, um, movie stars, NBA players, you know, everybody, and learned the five-star way. Um, and what's interesting about that is I, I I started in hospitals and wound up in hospitality and then married the two. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Um, I started, uh, then the market crashed um, in 2001. And by the way, I was handing out my cell phone and email address in 1998 and 99. Um, after the market crashed, my business uh, got pretty small because nobody was traveling and nobody was staying in hotels. Um, and I subsequently, um, with the pediatrician that I worked with uh, doing house calls on a little scooter through San Francisco. And by the way, we, we had a very big business by 2001. We had seven physicians um, and, and I couldn't hire fast enough. And then September 11th and the market crashed. Um, I, after that, I subsequently decided I would start a subscription business um, of healthcare. And, and I wanted to be at the top of the market because I watched what happens when you had investors um, as uh, looking over your shoulder. So I planted my flag at the highest price point and was going to be a five-star kind of concierge private medical practice um, and have over the last 20 years realized that a lot of the people joining my group are family offices or uh, or single family offices and a lot of people from uh, multifamily offices. So, you know, I, I focus on quality of medical care as my highest priority, but also access convenience and uh, because of my father being a chief of surgery, I had access to the top specialists. Um, and so, you know, we now have over 900 families uh, in the practice. Uh, we are uh, like other family offices. Uh, you know, we're discreet. We're confidential. We have no conflicts of interest. We're not open to the public. Um, and and we have a deep relationships with these families that we we hold in high regard. So I got introduced to the family office world by a long way of answering that question by kind of accidentally uh, walking into the Mandarin Oriental Hotel that day. Chris, what's your hotel story? And then you've got to tell <laughs> us a little bit about uh, what you were doing on the Arctic Circle as well, in addition to telling us how you got working with family offices. I'd like to say that I follow the same hotels that uh, Jordan has, but I, I, I don't know if I've ever been to the Mandarin, but it sounds nice. So I, I uh, you know, was 20, 25 years in the, in the ER and was, you know, probably looking for other ways to evolve in, in practice and started looking in the telehealth business. And, and like most ERs, you spend your day trying to evaluate those people who come through the door, physicians on the phone, where do people go and so on. And that was very similar to the Arctic Circle was they send you up there. Here's all the heads of state and here are all the military players. And you have to prepare and train and expect and plan for those things that you might expect, but be prepared for things that you never expect. So up we went. And on the first day, here came uh, uh, Greenpeace streakers across the beach as they did an amphibious landing. And the NATO and the amphibious trucks cut all our communication lines. And I think that kind of got me started down the, you know, how do you prepare and, and what do you anticipate and how do you then respond to things you, you just could never imagine. And after, you know, a number of decades in the ER, I started, uh, I opened up a company of telehealth medicine and I had met and known various security teams uh, through the years. And that was probably my first introduction to the family offices is that the security teams, we work with a number of former SAS or Secret Service or FBI teams, 
and they are a great connection for us. We work with similar clients. They're you know always available. They're very fastidious, very detail oriented. And so I was introduced to some of our first clients by their security teams, and then their security teams also introduced us in the family office circles. And from there, we started doing educational series and so on. And it sort of snowballed because many of the people that we would present to in the family offices actually turned out to be in need of, of, of help, either their clients or their families or themselves. So people who would search us out and say, you know, so-and-so is sick in this country. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to get in the country. We don't speak the language. And that's how we sort of build our, our sort of circle of influence and connections. Jordan, we are a year into this pandemic, over a year into this pandemic, life as it was in January of 2020. When can we expect anything close to that? Or should we not expect anything close to that ever again? So, Eddie, I'm not sure where the listeners of this podcast are, and it's very, very geographically centric. Uh, Right now, if you're in Michigan, that state's on fire. If you're in Northern California, where I am, like you're pretty much high vaccination rate and free to roam about the cabin. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, South America is, is, is in a bad place. Europe's about four months behind us. Um, you know, some vaccines are getting pulled for blood clots. So, I, you know, when are we going to get back to normal? Um, I think that f- for our category of, 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 of client, of member, you know, they're very, very mobile. Many of them have their own planes, uh, homes that, that can be, you know, well... <laughs> Uh, situated with the, with the new testing that's out. So now we have these PCR tests that are 30 minutes, they're at home, um, that are like $55 that you can buy online now. So I think once once you open up the testing um, world, you know, if you go somewhere um, or if you have a house and you have staff, everybody can be tested. You can obviously get a lot of people vaccinated, but it really depends where you are. I think COVID is going to be endemic for the next, for a very long time, for many, many, many years. Um, this is mutating. Um, you know, there was an article today that there have been a few cases of people who have been vaccinated that have gotten COVID again. Um, this is a very small number. Remember, when you're dealing with these massive numbers and the human brain isn't really used to dealing with massive numbers, um, you know, it, you know they, they can make headlines and, and get scary. But um, I, I'm working with a bunch of uh, large rock bands to figure out how they can open up stadiums and have concerts. Um, you know, which is, you know, I think that'll start happening in, in July in the United States anyway. I mean, outside of these variants in a couple of states like uh, Florida and Michigan and some of the states in the upper Northeast, uh, you still, you know, there's still going to be a lot of mask wearing, even if you're vaccinated, just because there's, there's still a lot of unknowns. So if I had to put my finger on where I think when we're going to get back to some version of normal, it's probably going to be for the society at large. Um in the United States early next year because all the kids will get vaccinated and schools will be open. And then the people that don't want to get vaccines or are afraid of them or the anti-vaxxers that they're just gambling and rolling the dice on what happens to them. Um, but I took my family who are vaccinated on a trip to New York. We flew on the plane. We flew JetBlue. We wore masks. We stayed in a hotel. I mean, we, we were still smart about things, but it felt like a very normal vacation. We went to the Guggenheim. We went to the Met. They were open 20%. We socially distanced. It, it felt pretty normal or a lot more normal than like living in your house and not being able to go out. Chris, let's look at the other side of the equation. What are some of the positive 
scientific outcomes and positive outcomes that you've seen? Because we, we tend to focus on the negative and when are we going to get back to what was or what will be? What are some of the things that you've seen that have been on the, at least on the science side, the development of all these different vaccines and, and, and other things from there? What have you seen on that end? Well, I think there's been a, a collective pause in that um, how we approach and how we think of ourselves as as a global population has been brought to the forefront. And the idea of these vaccines, even though they're not new, the application on this kind of size and the availability and efficacy rates in the high 90s were virtually unheard of. So in many ways, it's it's been a terrible year and loss and challenges and so on. But the fact that we're actually, you know, as Jordan said, is traveling. I recently traveled as well. You are now able to travel. You are now able to have gotten two very effective and essentially safe vaccines is is really an amazing accomplishment in such a short period of time. I mean, if you think back to a year ago, it was still a pipe dream that we would e- that we might even get a vaccine. It could be two years, it could be five years. And now we have one and it's amazingly effective. And there are some, you know, some stumbling blocks in terms of production and so on. But the fact that we have it, and now the branching out to the ideas of how quickly the tests have, are rolling out, the various varieties, how quick the turnaround, and the accuracy, the fact that there are now going to be apps that are going to be able to track your immune status or your vaccination status, some of the testing, and even the, to take the vaccine developments, those are now being used as foundation work. Will that be new treatments for cancer therapies or not just therapies, but um, certain disease prevention ideas is astounding and completely uh, sort of unheard of five years ago. So in some ways, there have been some really amazing developments. So Jordan... Well, I think the biggest one, um, and and uh, Chris alluded to it a little bit, is um, right now, or no, two years ago, three years ago, 10 years ago, if you had a little runny nose, you'd go to work, you'd go to school. That little runny nose could have been influenza, but you never knew it. Um, uh, some people don't get as, you know, super sick with influenza. A lot of people do. Some people die. So um, I was... Uh, working with all these testing companies through the epidemic because all of our my clients own big companies and have thousands of employees and they needed testing strategies. So I teamed up with a bunch of testing experts. And what, what the thesis is, is that if you have a little thing at home where you can do a test, I mean, for coronavirus, which is what, what is coming online right now. But imagine if you could do that for flu and your kid was on their way to school and you said, hold on a second, let's test that. Oh, you have influenza. Don't go to school. You can actually prevent influenza epidemics. If you have quick, easy testing, you can prevent all epidemics and ultimately play it forward. I mean, not to get a little morose, but you could that thing could do STD testing that could do all sorts of testing. So pretty soon at home, you'll be able to like a lot of the diagnostic stuff that lives in big machines and big hospitals, they're miniaturizing it, they're adding it to apps that, that can go to your doctor. So if you can get a lot of testing and information quickly at home, you really kind of turn the paradigm of healthcare upside down um, versus like, you know, now now people can like be have more agency in their health. They can have more information that they're not reliant on other people to a get the test, then wait some time to get the result. What does it mean? I mean, obviously, the what does it mean part? And I think Chris's telemedicine component, there's a lot of companies of which I was on the board of one that just got bought. 
um, that now telemedicine's at scale. You can get the test, but before the result comes in, if it's a positive result, you're there talking with the doctor um, or you're, you're engaging in a medical dialogue about the ramifications of a positive test. So like those are the short, quick, easy things that are going to be huge wins on the other side of this is that we could really tame a lot of uh, highly infectious, uh, in, uh, in, uh, contagious infectious diseases that we tip, which we heretofore really just um, kind of hoped we didn't have or hoped we didn't spread or hoped we didn't get. And what's interesting is, you know, you used to go on the airplane a couple of years ago and you saw the the dude or the or the lady with the mask on and you're like, I wonder how sick they are. But a lot of those people were actually just trying to prevent getting sick from you. Um, and so I think even the psychological shift in simple basic measures is is kind of underway. And I don't think you can unscramble that egg. Those changes, Jordan, are they evolutionary or are they revolutionary? I think they're step change. I, I, I think the downstream second and third order uh, implications of these are huge and stuff that like I'm still trying to wrap my head around. They will change entire industries uh, that that have based their, uh, which I'm going to, you know, in the world of medicine, I'm calling that fortress medicine. Fortress medicine in the United States is a $3.6 trillion enterprise and nobody wants to see the revenue go away. But all of that revenue generally flows into this ossified structure that it's it's a bit of a cabal. It's a highly regulated cabal of businesses that get that get this constant flow of, of U.S. Uh, money, of, of commercial money. I mean, uh, you know, government money. Um, and, and all of a sudden, these new companies are going to start up and they're going to change that flow. And the walls of Fortress Medicine are going to come down and the digital wave of just basic apps that we use for travel and 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 but buying stuff like those are coming too. We didn't even touch on that, but but just just on the diagnostic side, imagine imagine a world where you do a test, it's positive, and then next thing you know, someone's knocking on your door with a with a therapeutic, and the Uber just delivered you the medicine, and like that all happened in thirty minutes, and you never left your house. So I think this kind of concept of healthcare at home is is like probably in the bottom of the first inning, um, but but it's a game changer. And it's going to reframe and reshift the way medicine happens. I mean, at private medical, you know, our practice, we've always been available, meet you where you are, at home, we make house calls. We're, we're always solving in advance of the problem that you think you have or you don't even know you have. Kind of like what you were saying earlier, Chris, is biology is really predictable. Psychology, not so much, but kind of. And so if you understand the person and we're in the deep relationship business, if I understand who you are and I understand what your biology and physiology is, I can pretty much with a high degree of confidence predict what's likely to happen over time. And I, I then can build a path to get out in front of that. And I can use digital tools to automate a lot of these stuff so that you're, you know, you get to live your life and not have to deal with the healthcare system. Chris, are you seeing a similar step change in international uh, travel and the medicine that you do there? You, you and I have had a good conversations around how you support families when they're traveling into some very far off places. What has the pandemic done for that? Any good outcomes, any bad outcomes uh, from your experience? Well, I mean, I think everybody has to take it more seriously than they used to. Um, travelers used to have sort of different mindsets. Some were like, I never get sick. I don't need anything. I don't need to think about travel preparation, maybe a few shots. And we're now at the point now, like, like Jordan alluded to, there are virtually no symptoms these days that you can't at least have to entertain the idea that it could be COVID. 
So all the regular medical issues that you have at home, now when you have internationally, when you may be exposed to international medicine or rules and so on, you have to think of COVID. You have to think of what the state or the local national regulations are. What happens if you get sick? What happens? Can you get out of the country? Can you get home? Can you get to better medical care and so on? So while COVID, particularly as Jordan mentioned, is so rampant in certain areas and, and relatively under control in others, you're going to have to consider that you're going to be exposed to possibly variants or more serious um, um, numbers and exposure rates. So that that sort of simple carefree travel i think is is gone for for some time so the good news is at least there's an appreciation of of the of the value and the joy in traveling which i think everyone is waiting to do but it really now has evolved that there has to be a thought and we we as i mentioned to you before we traveled uh, covered a number of families traveling up and down the coast of croatia private yacht large and alarm staff. So you have to think of all the backgrounds of all the staff members, all their preparation, all their testing, all the ports, all the various medical facilities. And that's in the groundwork of then the common things that happen medically. People who get sick routinely, people who have traumatic events or car accidents and so on. So unfortunately, it's complicated everybody's world, but it has sort of woken everybody up to how much they enjoy and look forward to travel. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. And, and one other thing I'd add, Eddie, is, you know, from from my fence post of the world, which is a small one, um, you know, the future is here. It's just unevenly distributed. And I, I get first looks at all sorts of new technologies. I have the ability in a bespoke model where we can take care of a limited number of people, kind of like Chris, you know, we can make sure that like they have a very... Uh, Curate is probably the wrong word, but but an experience where they know that someone's thinking about their health when they're not, um, and they can then go out and live their life. Um, and so I, I really feel like we're at this design moment in healthcare because healthcare and people call it a system, but it's not a system. Um, meaning it's kind of a cobbled together quilt patch of of things that like led one problem. They put a patch onto it, and so it was never like authentically designed from whole cloth or and anything like that. So. I mean, I think even the DMV has more technology than, than the medical system right now, which is a real sad state of affairs. All innovation usually starts at the top before it trickles down. You have to have a, you know, you have to have a system that works before you can build a complex system that works. And so, you know, in my world, I'm, I've built a system uh, that works and I've designed healthcare from whole cloth around the experience of healthcare. Uh, you know, every interaction is, is thought through. Um, and, and planned in advance. And, and, you know, there's nothing really new. I mean, Chris, how many times has a yacht, has someone gotten a ski, water ski accident on a yacht? Like those things happen every so often. And when you know that's going to happen, you, you, you have a plan in place for it and there you go versus, oh, that's never happened before. I have to build a new system around that thing. So, so I think this concept of design, like the healthcare system in general, doesn't have this thesis of design and, and forward thinking and anticipatory modes, which I, I think is coming. I think uh, like Jordan said, in many ways, the ultimate luxury at this point now is to not have to think about this, to take some of the weight of trying to plan and, and think of what ifs, which at least in my experience, the, the, the successful clients and so on, the anxiety focus that we all have built into us looks for different things. And if your finances or your wealth are well taken care of, people tend to turn to different areas and, and health is one of them. And so if you are at this point where you can take that concern off your shoulders for a while and let someone else 
help carry that for you. It's a it's a big uh, a big luxury. Chris, one of the areas that you've talked about in in terms of a uh, uh, a game changer is is telehealth. It looked different before the pandemic. It looked different in adoption. Certainly, policy and laws and exceptions uh, have been made. What, what do you think it's going to look like in, in this new dynamic, in this new world? Are we going to be able to continue to have access to telemedicine uh, either here in the United States and, and globally with all the policies and uh, regulatory issues that come with it? Um, that's a good question. I wish I had the ultimate answer. I, it's gone from, it used to be a combination of sort of gimmicky, almost like put a quarter in the video and you get somebody who pops up, you don't know, they give you an antibiotic that you didn't need and then they disappear. All the way up to what Jordan's running, which is sort of the high end and, and the ultimate of what you want. You want someone to have a thoughtful answer and uh, a knowledge of who you are and what you're carrying and what you're doing. That's kind of what we're all hoping to get to. And so the good news is this has sort of forced our hand to say, do we really need to have to be in a facility or in front of you to get good continuation of care? And the answer is we don't. However, but standing between that and what we need to get to is going to now be state regulations, state laws that say we want to protect our medical practices so we don't want physicians from other states practicing here. That's going to be one issue. And then the other bigger issue is that that on a volume basis, who's going to pay for this? Is this going to qualify for medical insurance, some sort of code? Is that going to work? Because unfortunately, those are both drivers in this market and they are both going to get in the way of you do not need to see your physician in, per, in uh, person every time. It's, it's not necessary. It's incredibly important at times. And that's also going to be another thing is we have to remember that the in-person meeting that Jordan does is unbelievable for the start or for the maintaining of a, of a doctor-patient relationship. However, there are ways of making it easier and more efficient for everyone. So there is at least a plan afoot to make telemedicine a more uh, likely possibility legally across state lines. It hasn't happened. There's movements and there's initiatives to get it done. But I'm, I'm a little concerned that there are going to be un, uh, financial and legal um, blocking efforts. So we'll have to see where it goes. So Jordan, as you mentioned, some of your clients are able to think about other, other areas and, and go deeper into their thoughts of their overall healthcare experience. I think one of the areas that we've talked about of high interest is is a focus on longevity. Where is uh, where is that going, and and what's top of mind uh, to you and to your clients in that in that area? Uh, yeah, this is this is the been a topic for a long time, and I, I I would take a step back and 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 ask everybody who's listening to try to define what longevity means to them. Does it mean living longer? Does it mean living better? Does it mean both? Um, does it mean being stronger? So I think everyone has their own definition of longevity. And, uh, and so I think it's important that we just kind of run to ground what the definition is. Um, obviously, the word's got the word long in it, so people think you live longer. Um, and I guess what I would say is I think about uh, life uh, and health in the context of the next 10 and the next 20. Like if you don't get the next 10 and the next 20 right years, you don't get an option on the next 10 or the next 20 after that. So really you need to start, you need to think in terms of increments that are like actionable 
and, and understandable. So at our practice, everybody who either joins or is a member, we do a very deep baseline of, you know, I, I think about each person as a portfolio of risks. You have cardiovascular risk, you have genetic risk, you have metabolic risk, you have environmental risk, you have family dynamic mental health risk. You've got, you know, you've just got, you've got uh, all sorts of risk. And so how do you quantify these risks into a basket that you can build a plan around? Um, so if I, you know, I can't prevent cancer, some of them, but I can catch it super early and prevent you from having to have surgery or dying of it. So ultimately, um, the way I think of longevity is like, let's just focus on a period of time, 10 or 20 years, and let's 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 execute on it. And by the way, um, in the current model, if you need a blood test and it takes you 45 minutes to go to the lab, wait in line, get the blood test, you know, that's 45 minutes of your life. What if that could happen in 10 minutes? Like the net present value of those 30 minutes you saved is probably worth a lot more to you than 30 minutes when you're 90 years old. So do you want the time today or do you want to live or do you want the time later? And I think what you really want is both. And, you know, our, our, our whole concept is, is let's 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 give you that time now, because most most people have, at least in our practice and most family offices, you have more money than time. And it's really hard to buy time. I mean, sometimes you can. But but in medicine, at least the way I think about it, you, you can and you should. And why wouldn't you? Um, this is these are these are rounding errors um, in the context of, of, of oftentimes of people's net worths. But 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 time isn't a rounding error. You, you know, you only have I had a friend say to me, I've got 23 summers left in my life. He just turned 60. He's like, I, I probably got 23 left in me. He's like, you know, and I was like, wow, I never really thought about it like that. And by the way, we have we, we're alive for 4000 weeks. So the, depending on how you frame up time, I think that's the luxury is in being able to enjoy it in a way that you can and having having somebody monitor alongside you as your partner, right? It really, it's not, it's not just what's the matter with you. It's what it's what matters to you and what's the matter with you that those need to be coupled so that you can live your life um, and a long life and a long, healthy life. Chris, from your perspective, emergency medicine you're on the you're on the front lines of a lot of different things that are that are coming across. What are you seeing there, and how is that uh, how is that playing into what Jordan just talked about in terms of longevity? I so you mean in terms of the ER aspects for longevity? I I would sort of throw in the you you do have to be careful. It's a it's a delicate path that we're traveling. And it, it can go anywhere from those who think that they have to get every test in the world because they don't want to miss anything. And now they're so over-tested and they're so over-traveled and they're doctor shopping and they're doing it that they're, they're sort of ruining the time they have. And that's sort of one extreme. And, and the other one that I, that I run into more often is that we are all patients and your background, your success, your wealth, your private jet, you're a patient no matter what. And so for me, it's it's where you're going to be, where you're going to be that patient. And as that patient, how do we inform, direct, prepare you so that you know how or have options to make choices that are difficult to make on a sometimes moment to moment or hour to hour um, basis because you know, it's, we're all looking for support. We're looking for advice in some very challenging times. And so I think it's sometimes the, the things we see, and I'll, I'll, I'll say, for example, people who say travel, I've had families who will travel to the southern tip of South America. What are you going to do if this, this, or this happens? Well, we're going to get on our jet. 
Well, your jet at that point is nothing more than a cab. So do you want to take a cab or do you want to take an ambulance? Do you want to get an evaluation before you get into a five-hour flight or do you want to have some sense of what it is? So for us, it's, it's really trying to make sure they get to enjoy the time they have, but they also have resources available. So if things come up, they, they have people to turn to. Looking ahead, Jordan, you, you've talked about some of the areas of advancement, but there's certainly some adjacent technologies that we've talked about in terms of quantum computing and AI. What is that going to do to the medical space 10 years from now? So AI is really good at pattern recognition and... Um, you know, and then there's what I call BI, which is biologic intelligence, which is really good at discerning humans from from what they what they're saying, what they mean, and, and by looking at them. So I think where AI is really going to come into play is uh, anything that ends in ography or oscopy, uh, where like you have to look at things under a microscope or through a camera. I think that AI will have better eyes than humans in a lot of ways, or at least it will augment humans ability to do stuff. So pathology is, is kind of on deck as as one of the fields where, you know, do you want a bunch of humans looking at slides? And I've read the pros and cons of both sides, or do you want a machine that does it, you know, at a much higher fidelity and accuracy? Um, you're probably gonna want a little bit of both, um, but but that's that's one of the things in radiology, looking at x-rays and CAT scans that you have to look at like micro pixels. And, you know, a friend of mine started a company called Arteries um, many years ago, and, and that basically takes every image from around the world, uploads it in the cloud, looks at them, sees what the diagnosis is, and starts to train models against um, better, better, uh, higher accuracy uh, radiology reads. So I think those two fields are are right in the sweet spot of of where it goes. Uh, you know, I think in the mental health world, it's really <clears throat> going to make a difference. And and I think I think the most human version of this is kind of in this. Uh, automated digital first shared decision making. So, for example, <clears throat> if you uh, have a prostate biopsy that shows a three out of three Gleason or something more than that, like there's a lot of decisions and a lot of data to make. And right now, you got to talk to doctors and call specialists. And my, most of our members, like they'll they want to talk to every leading expert in the world. Well, they're the questions that they're asking these people are the same questions that everyone's asking them, and the answers are all the same uh, that they give them. Uh, slightly nuanced. Of course, um, but ultimately it's about risk tolerance, and what's and your and your what's your risk profile and what's your risk tolerance. And so I I see a lot of these shared decision making tools and automation giving people the ability to like ask a lot of questions and get a lot of answers for themselves before they make a decision about their next step in health. And in our model, we use those tools, but we pair them with with your team, so you're getting a little bit of that human touch as well. But if you're thinking about at scale. Uh, it, you know, uh, you know, you could have a lot of people using these shared decision-making tools and and, re- and and really minimizing a lot of other time spent with the healthcare system on on Q and A. Chris, what are you seeing on the on the bleeding edge of technology and how that's going to change medicine uh, over the next five or ten years? I think Jordan's much more in that sort of scope. We're we're more in the sort of emergent and management issue. Uh, I I would say that some of that very same intelligence that's looking at patterns and so on is also being adopted into new therapies. So the ability to, for example, genetically to figure out what illnesses we have, which prevalence we're getting, even the idea now that we're looking at different variants in COVID, in the COVID uh, virus, that quickly and that 
successfully when we do look is is absolutely astounding. So th to continue that idea that there are going to be uh, tailored treatments to our individual medical problems, cancers, illnesses, in, in not just treatments, but also in preventions or complete cures, I think is one of the most uh, fascinating uh, areas that we have that we can, even now the mRNA, that we are giving instructions to our cells to how to make sort of fake um, crowns of the coronavirus. So we develop antibodies is, is incredible. It's not new, but the, the fact that we're using it this way, astounding. And I think that's just going to continue. So last question is really around lessons learned. You know, question of, you know, what do you know today versus what you knew when you when first got started in uh, this field that you wish you would have known? You know, maybe, Jordan, we could start with you around um, what are some of the lessons learned that you've had? Um, yeah, I, I that's a great question. I, I think the, the number one lesson, at least with the pandemic and even in the 20 years, is I've always th thought of health as as this thing that that we have, like, that we hope it doesn't go bad. Um, and, and, and we all kind of hope is our strategy. Like we hope that, um, that we live a long life and we hope we don't. But the truth is, is this is a data-driven evidence-based world and you can get precise personalized medicine and, and, and hope is not a good strategy. And, um, you know, and, and, and I guess the, the lesson is that health is our most valuable asset. It's not our bank account. It's not the things that we own. Uh, Cause without our health, uh, we don't, our other assets don't mean much. And I and I and I think that what we've just taken that for granted for too long, uh, all of us. And I think what the pandemic did is made everybody. It didn't matter what you had; you had to focus on your health because it was the only thing that you that you really had on your mind throughout this pandemic. Um, you know, there's a saying that says, "If you have good health, you have many problems, but if you have bad health, you have only one problem." Um, and and ultimately, um, you know, the lesson I learned the the, the broad lesson is is that. You know, giving people comfort that they're being taken care of is is probably the most valuable um, resource there is. Uh, we we love what we do here. We get you know we're in the inner circle of all of these families, and and health is 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 on the beginning of a long, quick change in the next five to ten years. Chris, what's your your lesson learned from? when you got started versus where you are today? I think it'd be, it would be sort of an evolution of what you learn in the ER, is that, is that fear and anxiety is everywhere. Every complaint, every medical issue, every adaptation to a medical complaint, someone related to a relative or the future. And you have to, you have to consider that in every treatment decision, every educational discussion you have, is that what what is forefront in people's minds? What are they most concerned about? And if you don't at least consider that as to part of why they're there, what they're why they're asking you, what are they looking for, um, you're missing the boat. You're missing why people are struggling and why people are looking for help. Thanks, uh, Jordan and Chris, for, for joining us today. I uh, think for all of you for listening as well. And if you'd like to get in touch with Chris or Jordan or you have any questions, do send us an email to familyoffice at dentons.com. And if you enjoyed our, today's conversation or so inclined, subscribe to our channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated. 
and probably the best way that you can show your support. To sign up for our newsletters and learn more about our solutions and research in the family office space, check out our website. That is dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye, everyone. Thank you.